Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. My name is Andrew Robinson and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Mike Rodriguez, Peter Chur, and for the first time on the Academy Securities Podcast, Janie Mines. This is our second episode focusing on ESG best practices. Last time, we spoke about environmental sustainability. This episode will focus on the S in ESG, social responsibility. As always, Rachel does a great job of setting the table and introducing our contributors. So very excited to have so much of our team here today to continue our ESG-focused conversation. Um, of course, we're joined by Mike Rodriguez, our head of ESG, and Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy. But for the first time on the Academy Securities podcast, we have Janie Mines, our head of inclusion and innovation, to discuss the social impact of ESG investing initiatives and issuance. Janie, would love to give you the floor first to discuss a little bit about your background, uh, how you interface with DNI initiatives, con- uh, provide advice to organizations on how best to make a social impact, uh, and what you view the current landscape, um, how you view the current landscape. Well, hello, everybody. I'm pleased to be here again. As Rachel stated, I'm Janie Mines. My background is I was a Naval officer, part of the first class of women to graduate from the Naval Academy and the only African-American woman admitted in that class. Um, As a result of that experience and many other life experiences after that, I've had a large opportunity to interface with diverse groups, uh, multifaceted leadership roles, just the opportunity to work across 15 different industries. Um, almost in every function there is in business. And D and DEI, DNI inclusion, whatever terms we use to describe this, from my perspective, come down to fundamental leadership. If you're leading an organization and treating all members of that organization as though they have value, empowering empowering them and enabling them to do their um, optimal work, then the entire organization will thrive. You will find it much less of a requirement to focus in on women's issues or minorities issues if you have a culture that is inclusive for everyone. So typically when we talk about it, I'm the Senior Vice President of Inclusion and Innovation because we find that inclusion is the key fundamental piece to this. And if you have an inclusive, enabled, empowered workforce, innovation will follow. So fundamentally, that's the way that we look at this and that's the way that we tend to assist anyone that we're working with in developing their organizations. And Peter, I want to bring you in because I know you and Janie have talked a lot about how inclusion and issues around DNI and social impact have a broader market implications. Um, would love to hear your your thoughts on on trends in this space and what it really means for um, economic development. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting opportunity. I think one thing is even the Federal Reserve is well aware now of the problems that can stem from inequality. So I think people are really looking for a build out of diversity because it solves some problems as well as enhancing company flows. It's a really interesting aspect. The one question I get from some companies is, 
how do you deal with it if geographically maybe you don't have a diverse candidate pool? How, how do you go about doing this when maybe there's impediments to doing it? One of the, you know, fundamentally, I've always had the belief that if you spread your net far enough, you will get an opportunity to touch, you know, all different types of people. And I saw this at a, actually at a recruiting um, effort at the Naval Academy. They brought in some bright young officers to work on helping the Naval Academy become more diverse. And typically we focus coast or coast. We're either on the West Coast or the East Coast. They start going to Montana, Wyoming, Missouri, all the places that we typically don't go to and we're able to far exceed their numbers. So sometimes we need to think out of the box. Sometimes we need to involve a more diverse group in coming up with the problem solving. But there is the candidates exist. The people are out there the same way that we make a very dedicated focus emphasis on any of our business challenges once we decide to do it. We need to do the same thing as it relates to diversity and inclusion, have a plan, have resources, have brought in the best talents you have to, have to put against the problem and go for it as a team. Thanks. I think that's a great takeaway for everyone. Mike, from your seat as our head of ESG advising issuers on how to best take advantage of the capital markets to achieve their ESG initiatives and goals, what's your view on how organizations and companies and issuers can make a, their biggest social impact in this space? Thanks, Rachel. So I think what we're really talking about when we're, when we're looking at this and how they're looking to have an impact is this is your human capital. So a lot of this is an evolution in how we manage and examine uh, our capital that exists. And we have this human capital, which Adam Smith had gone into Wealth of Nations. And, I, and what we're seeing are folks looking at capital in this perspective, you know, your natural capital, whether that's greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's your, your human and social capital, the people that are part of your value chain and keep that operating. Um, is it your, your brand, your social capital? And then you have your financial capital. And now that's starting to be, you know, looked at a little bit more holistically. And I think folks are, are really hyper-focused on this. Um, you know, although corporations have historically provided opportunities to upskill their workers and other philanthropic causes, now it's a, just a much more concerted and planned effort as individuals see the value in this, especially in upskilling and training. And it's really about developing this human capital. It goes back to a couple of things. I think one that issuers are using to help align and strategize this are the UN Sustainability Development Goals. There's easily uh, five or six on there which target human capital and uplifting that. It goes back to examining it a little more holistically and saying, where else outside of maybe the useful machines that facilitate labor or the buildings or developed land, you know, what other areas can we look to go to and improve upon in, your in our value chain that will allow us to continue to grow and innovate, just like Janie went back to. You know, the, your human capital is extremely important because that's what keeps all the other capital going. So what ways are you investing and in looking at that to help facilitate the growth of this other type of capital? And it's obvious in one way that folks are doing that is going to um, capital markets in the form of ESG um, loan and bond opportunities to help do that. One of the things too, Rachel, that it's it's interesting when you've been in business 
as long as some of us have. We've seen some real trends come and go, um, and a lot of them are just contingent upon the willingness of organizations to invest in their communities. One of the things that was done in the community that I live in now is that the corporations identified the skill sets that they needed, helped the schools to offer majors within the schools that encompass those skill sets. They put in equipment and brought in people to help to do the training so that the young people got a feel for engineering or uh, whatever potential, that most of them were technical skills, STEM skills. So whatever you might be interested in, in high school, the corporations built relationships. They bought the kids in as internships. While they were in high school, at a certain age, they could come and start working for them. So they invested in communities. That We don't see as much of that happening anymore um, in order to build the workforces that, that are necessary out there for us to be successful. And I think it's around explaining the value proposition in a world that's driven by quarters. Performance, you've got to hit those numbers every quarter, and that's what drives everything, and, and everything else is secondary to that. And the types of things I'm talking about are more strategic um, in terms of investing in your community and building your workforce so that it is sustainable over a period of time. So one of the big challenges is how do we make the business case, the value proposition for looking doing our best to meet the quarterly quarterly um, returns, but the same way that we communicate to shareholders that we need to invest with technology in our businesses, and this is time we need to do that, and they understand that, having the same type of communication around investing in the human capital so that we're able to go forward and have the talents and skills that we need available to us in the future. I think that's a really interesting point, Janie, and reminds me of a lot of trends that Peter has been highlighting over the last 24 months. When you said organizations need to start thinking strategically, whether that's be making your supply chains more domestically focused, seeing what or what companies you're doing business with, or maybe housing your business in um, based off geopolitical conditions, how the pandemic has just stressed so many elements of the workforce and supply chains. Peter, um, any thoughts on what Janie had to say and, and how that overlaps with a lot of the trends that you've been seeing? Yeah, I think those are all great points. When I look at ESG investing, I think we're evolving and we're evolving fairly rapidly. And if you go back four or five years ago, maybe slightly longer, it was really about governance. And most companies have now been addressing governance reasonably well. And we're getting more and more sophisticated and I really think the next frontier is going to be a much closer look at supply chains and really imposing the qualities of your supply chain back on you. So to the extent that your suppliers are doing things that would be deemed unacceptable in the U.S., whether it's from a pollution standpoint, whether it's from a worker treatment standpoint, I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny. And that's going to be create opportunities where companies can look at, you know, quote unquote, doing the right thing a little bit more and figuring out what to do. I do think from a business standpoint, that's going to be somewhat inflationary because I believe that either we are going to have to bring things more onshore, which will have a cost, or some of the suppliers we're using may have to step up their standards, which could have a cost to them. But if this is all to the goal of creating a more fair and balanced work environment, not just domestically, but across the globe, it makes sense. 
And one reason I think this is going to happen now, where maybe it hasn't happened in the past, is there's a real belief that companies can pass on that cost to two people. One, they can pass on a lot of the cost to consumers. There's a much more awareness amongst consumers of what they're buying in terms of products. And there's certainly right now a strong sense that you can charge more if you are delivering sustainability. If you are delivering something that invokes what people are looking for, you can charge more for those products. So some of those costs can be passed on, which incentivize companies to do it. And the other part is you know, more dollars and cents, but to a large degree, as ESG investors drive more and more money, they can pay more for companies for every dollar of earnings from a company that is deemed to be ESG or sustainable. So maybe instead of making a dollar, you make 98 cents a share, but that's okay because your PE can go from 15 to 18. You can issue bonds at better prices. I think right now we've seen this trend towards green bonds, but more and more I think companies are gonna position themselves to be viewed holistically as a green company. And there's gonna be a value that they can do that. So to me, that's probably been the biggest thing that has shifted during this push for sustainability than we've seen in the past is the ability for companies to not only pass on the cost, but to be rewarded by shareholders. And that changes the decision tree for a lot of CFOs and CEOs in a way that I think will accelerate this. Peter, one question, and it's something that with my background and looking at working across multiple industries, one of the things, and with the, my foundation is around transformation. So silos are always a concern to me. So as I have worked within industries, within organizations on silos, when I look at some of these holistic in, um, issues, especially as it relates to supply chain, if we don't have enough, if the roads aren't there, if we don't have the drivers, if the equipment isn't there, if we don't have the people to offload, that impacts all our industries. But we continue, from my perspective, you correct me if, if I'm missing something, continue to work on it at best at an industry, from an industry silo perspective, when if we diverted a few of those lobbyists or people that we have, and maybe a few other resources that we have working just on industry specific things in Washington or you know out in our operations and actually came together, defined what is common to all of us from, a, from the value in our supply chain and put our diverse industry, because we'll look at it differently because of the different industries and that will bring value. Diversity is, is a very broad term. Look at it from that perspective and see what we could do across all these industries to help to impact what's going on in our supply chain. Yeah, I think I've got good and bad news on that front. I think in an ideal world, it would be great if we had a holistic plan where it was very well thought out and we could take all these steps. The one concern I get sometimes is that we have a vision of where we want to be, but not necessarily a plan to get to that vision. And that's something that we need to address. I think we're seeing some problems in Europe right now where maybe they got ahead of themselves in where they were on sustainable energy without taking maybe the precautions as backup plans. So I do think we should have that. I think we would find that there might be places that we should really focus our efforts because you get massive bang for the buck. And there are other areas that maybe you don't get such massive bang for the buck, but when we're just expecting you know, these blanket statements of everyone has to reduce by 10% or something like that, we may not come up to the best solution. Having said that, the one thing I do take some degree of confidence is in the US, we have hundreds if not thousands of small companies, large companies working on this. 
and solutions will develop and they will bubble up and these companies will do well, they'll get taken over. One thing I've already seen starting to change this is, for example, if you look at the energy field, for a while people were just looking at these smaller companies as who's sustainable or not. And now you have companies like ExxonMobil, which have really tried to become sustainable with their 2000 PhDs who built all sorts of you know, energy production facilities over the years, right? So I think you're seeing that change. It's going to be a little bit more organic and a little bit disconnected. And one thing I have to say that I'm really torn on about this whole subject, and maybe you can have Mike talk about it a little bit more, is there's a push towards metrics. So to some degree, people want more and more metrics where you can measure these things. And on the surface, that always sounds great, right? Because now you have some targets that you can meet. There's ways to calculate it. And all that sounds good. Having said that, one thing you know, Wall Street probably in particular is very good at is if you give us a set of metrics, we figure out ways to you know, get around that in the most efficient way possible, right? So does setting up metrics today reduce the ingenuity, the thought process of where we could be going forward and actually hamper the ultimate growth, right? It kind of, as soon as you start getting metrics, people focus on those metrics and solving around those metrics. And yet maybe the current metrics aren't where we should be headed. And I don't like that because I really like the thought of you know, all sorts of different industries, leaders, investors pushing their view on where we should be going and things rising to the top. And once we get sucked into the world of metrics, it becomes just very easy for someone to say, check the box and move on. And I, I doubt that's ever going to lead to the optimal outcome. Maybe it's the best we can do right now, but that I don't like that drive a little bit too much towards metrics and measurements where people take it as, you know, gospel truth rather than just a goal or a thought process. Mike, I, I definitely want to get your take on that. And Janie, I think the big take for me, where the big takeaway from that question that Peter proposes goes right back to your initial point. It comes back to leadership, right? So Mike, what are your, your thoughts on, obviously metrics are important. There, you have to verify that you're making the impact that you're, you're claiming. You know, what are your thoughts on Peter's question? Yeah, Peter brings up a great point, and that's, you know, where are you going to, where do you draw the line between, you know, the subjective and objective, and, you know, the, the numbers and metrics are great on the objective portion, you know, they, they give you a number, and like you're saying, it's, it's a metric that, that can be met, and, or that can be met. The question is, is the process and how it's looking to be met, is it the right one? I think in general, for a lot of ESG metric, it, it's going to be a, this is going to be an evolution. What we have decided today now, whether that's greenhouse gases, social impact, or the governance metrics, we might find out in maybe three years from now was, wasn't, the, wasn't actually beneficial or correct. And I think that one of the challenges, especially on the social side, is really how do you determine and look to disclose the impact on the money you spent in a region and in, in the locations on where attrition, you know, low median income earners? Um, how do you, how are we measuring this, you know, and, and that's the question beyond just throwing money at it is, was this, are you using a Gini coefficient, um, increases made in the median income of the region? Those are going to be really probably tough for, for folks to put together on such a micro level. I think they're hard for us on a more macro level to put together, but how do you even look to do that for a particular issuer on a, on a social bond raise and how they look to, you know, report on that. So that's a, I think that this is going to be something that we're going to have to constantly, you know, you know, work through and, and, and refine. 
But right now, the when the chief metrics, at least on the social impact and bond side, at least we're determining how where the areas are going in is really community development. And there are probably 8,000 opportunity tracts uh, representing economically distressed areas. I believe that covers about 12% of the United States. So um, that's where a lot of folks are using, you know, primarily ge geospatial metrics. Hey, we're going to go into one particular area and look to invest or allocate funding into this region. But at the end of the day, you know, what's the impact on that region? How is it measuring, you know, whether or not you're going to report on that, but just to know you're efficient. I think it's hard to determine kind of sort of what those are at the moment. But the beneficial thing about, I'd say, the social impact versus the environmental impact is you're always going to be able to help out a particular area. Um, it's hard to say, at least in the near term, you know, what the benefit of this uh, environmental improvement might be. You might not see it perhaps maybe 10 years down the road as emissions decrease and, you know, heat indexes maybe go down. But on the social side, it should be seen relatively quickly or within a couple of years. And in that case, that might that's where we can get into maybe now isn't always the best time to be to have an idea of what we're doing. And maybe three years from now, we actually have a much better idea on how these metrics play out because we've, you, you know, we've seen the impact and we know how to better measure it. I wish I could always provide, you know, here's the best way to go at this. But, you know, again, from the social side, it's a little bit more subjective versus the environmental side, which, you know, we could easily point to greenhouse gas emissions or water withdrawn. Or, or waste accumulated, but it's hard to say, you know, how, you know, that's going to go and in, in perhaps impact the, the value add on the business in the long run. But I think and what's great about the, the social impact side is, you know, you're really going to be going impacting, you know, the people and communities within your value chain. And if you have an infrastructure and framework and executing on that, you know, you should be able to see, you know, how you're performing and then be able to adjust from there and then refine, you know, how you are actually measuring. I wish I could probably provide you a better answer, Rachel, but on, on the side, it's still an evolving, it's still an evolving space. And I think it's important for everyone to be paying attention to this and bring up these questions. To, to add on to what Michael and Peter are saying also, is that quite often with, with these types of, um, metrics we often have too many often um just start with something we take issues that are multivariate and try to make them one metric so there are many other variables that are hitting them so we have the capability right now to send people in the space and we've calculated the angles there's a lot of variables that can impact that rocket when it's taking off landing or just transitioning we have figured those calculations out, what those variables are for factored in what we need to factor in for the unseen. It gets back to, do we really want to do this? Because I, my, my background, part of my background, I'm a master black belt in Lean Six Sigma. So me metrics and measuring business performance is something that I've done quite a bit of. And if we truly, from a social perspective, want to understand if there's an impact on the median income of a particular location 
we start tracking that. There are other things from our governance, our processes, technology available, evolution that will occur over time. Track those simultaneously, understand the degree of impact, just like we do on anything else we're serious about. There's no 100% solution. And like Peter said, we're smart. We can try to find a way around it. But as well as we do many other metrics of things that we're truly serious about, we can do that from a social perspective. I, I want to piggyback on, again, what Janie was saying about, you know, when, when we start looking at these metrics, there's a question of, and this is a lot goes back to materiality, what, do we apply metrics across the board? Or are certain metrics only going to be applied to maybe certain segments, issuers, or sectors? That's something when we get back, um, you know, the Values Reporting Foundation, also known as SASB, sort of touches on. And, you know, I think that's a, it's a broader question. Do you, are we going to be, do we subject everyone to the same standard or will it be different? And if, if it's a different for folks, you know, how are people taking that count and, and weighting that appropriately within their decisions across maybe this sector and this one? Um, and there's differences maybe in the social metrics that exist. So I, I just wanted to bring that up again when we're going back to, to metrics. It's, you know, are, are we going to do just uh, across the board and that therein might be more onerous for, for certain organizations to have to aggregate that information, which actually might be less critical to them, versus focusing on maybe more material metrics and something that's a little bit more bespoke. But this is, this is a, this is a conversation that is actually, you know, occurring right now in the broader ESG and regulatory spaces. You know, is this is this materiality or is this just something that is a, a, a standard that we apply to everybody? And that's where there's some serious discussion taking place right now. And I think it's part of the evolution we're going to be seeing these couple of years is how is what we're already doing voluntarily, how is this going to play out and perhaps you know, will we apply that to a broader regulation or just something that's more bespoke between um, maybe particular issuers or sectors? Mike, any thoughts on last question, last remarks, uh, anything you didn't get to say? What I would like to go back on is this idea of human capital as, as an area of investment and going, you know, again, reviewing Adam Smith's, um, you know, Wealth of Nations, it's pretty phenomenal to see the investment that organizations are now putting into their human and human and social capital. It's really getting zeroed and focused in on there. And I just wanted to provide some numbers on sort of what we're seeing. You know, financing for social use of proceeds, you know, has already eclipsed about three billion year to date. That was only about 500 million a couple of years ago. Um, you know, we also have sustainability use of proceeds, which incorporates that social impact in there as well. Um, and then you have the green issuance. And I think this really just speaks to folks finding the value in their human capital and wanting to focus on that. Um, and really being able, and now that we have these organizations out there, whether the United, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that provide sort of the, you know, this, uh, broad standard of sustainability goals that folks can align with and say, all right, here's within my value chain that hits this social impact in my human capital and I can go out there and, you know, investors are agreed upon this and find, I think this is a, I think it's pretty phenomenal. 
and, and definitely an interesting development that we're, that we're seeing and really excited to see how it evolves, but wanted to focus just on the growth that a lot of U.S. corporations specifically, as well as happening in Europe, are, are dedicating to the, the, you know, the people and their stakeholders within value chain, their value chains. But that would be about it. Uh, perfect. I think this is a great way to end this conversation because to me, we're only in the third, fourth, maybe fifth inning of this game and we're getting more sophisticated in how we look at it. And I think thinking that, you know, sitting down, figuring out these things, taking the right approaches will lead to real opportunity. And it's got to be a thought process. It's got to be an efficient use of capital, taking advantage of the benefits of diversity, taking benefits of the, you know, advantage of the benefits of sustainability, but doing it in such a way that we do take advantage of that. And it can't just be lip service. And these plans have to go beyond sounding great. They have to be implementable. But I think the companies and investors who figure out how to do this and incorporate it into their process and make it part of their day-to-day -day culture will do very, very well in the coming you know, years and decades. And it's a huge opportunity for big and small companies alike. And Janie is someone who understands this uh, topic at, to such a level of expertise and so much practical um, knowledge and experience in this. What is What are some of the key takeaways for our listeners um, around social impact investing uh, initiatives and issuance? You know, it's interesting, listening to both Michael and Peter, they have brought up some very key points and a lot of it points back to leadership. The things that we decide to do as an organization, some of the great leaders that I've tried to um, emulate have been people like Jack Welsh with GE, Sam Walton with Walmart, Hugh McCall who built the first coast-to-coast -coast bank in this country. And I've had the opportunity to speak personally with two of them. And it was all about the human capital. It was all about the people. It was not only um, having a diverse workforce from every perspective, geographic, um, race, gender, thought processes, what, whatever. Um, it was about enabling them with the knowledge and tools to get it done and then as we are mission driven, helping them to understand what that mission was and then setting them free to do it. And along with the things that we're doing around ESG with that, particularly with that social piece, I know that a lot of organizations feel like with the technology and AI and machine learning and all of that going on that people may be less of a factor. And we've been thinking that for decades. And I think we're starting to come to the realization that that may not be as realistic as we may have thought at one time. That the innovation from a diverse, empowered, enabled workforce can't be beat by anything. So as we look forward to what we want to accomplish as a nation in our industries, across our industries, working together to continue to build our nation, our people, our human capital is fundamental and those are investments well made. Janie, I think that's such a great note to end on and I want to thank everyone for participating in today's discussion. A key takeaway for me, quite frankly, is just how much diversity of thought and perspective existed in this discussion and on this podcast. Peter, with your industry and Wall Street perspective, Mike, 
from coming from the Marine Corps that shaped your concerns around issues of sustainability? And Janie, with your 40 plus year career working on diversity issues on innovation in industry and now as a great asset to Academy Securities, I just really appreciate all your thoughts on the matter and thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Rachel, Janie, Peter, and Mike for your contributions to this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time to join us today. If you're interested in connecting with any of our team members directly on these topics, please email info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. And one more time, I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.